Good morning, brethren and sisters and friends. We didn't quite finish all the material we were to consider yesterday morning concerning the first aspect of the work of the Messiah. The reading in Jeremiah, the third chapter this morning, was very appropriate for the remaining remarks that we have concerning what we didn't cover yesterday. I'd like if you, if each of you would turn to Isaiah chapter 53, and I want to bring more clearly to your attention this first aspect of the work of the Messiah, that it was, as I pointed out yesterday, it was to finish the transgression. The 53rd chapter of Isaiah, we are going to read two verses. We read them yesterday, but there are some points which were not covered in our remarks. Verse 5 and verse 8. I'd like you to, uh, to uh, note, as I am going to read these two verses from five other uh, translations in order that it will emphasize, if at all possible, why it was to finish the transgression. I'll read first from the authorized version, verse 5. But he was wounded for our transgressions. Uh, brethren and sisters, keep in mind to whom Isaiah is writing. This is most important in considering the work of the Messiah, who he's talking to, particularly at this time. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquity. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. And in verse 8, he was taken from prison and from judgment, and who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living, for the transgression of my people was he stricken. It is for my people that he was stricken. Now, I have to confess that many times I have read these verses and they didn't seem to register with me the full import of what was meant for the transgression of my people and why. Now, I'm going to, you have just read, we've just heard, for the transgression of my people as it is given in the authorized version. Now, in Young's literal translation, it reads, By the transgression of my people, he is plagued. In the Septuagint, because of the iniquity of my people, he was led to death. The Masoretic text, which is a Hebrew text, for the transgression of my people, note, to whom the stroke was due. Rotherhams, for my people's transgression did the stroke 
fall on him. And for the revised version, for the transgression of my people was he stricken. Brethren and sisters, the work of the Messiah really surpasses our ability to comprehend what it involved. You recall in the prophets, I believe it's in, in uh, Second Chronicles, where this statement is made, there was no remedy. There was no remedy for the transgression of my people. What was the only remedy that would take away iniquity? What is the only remedy that will take away transgression? It's death. Now, let's look at it in this light and see if we can uh, get a better understanding of why these different translations emphasize so much that it was for the transgression of my people. Let us assume for a moment, if the Almighty, in his justice and in keeping with his laws, which are holy, good, and just, had cut off Israel for their transgression, when Isaiah wrote this, where would the Messiah be? He would not have been born. The Messiah was provided to take the stroke that was to fall upon Israel for their iniquity, for their transgression. And when we can comprehend this viewpoint, or this, this viewpoint of the work of the Messiah, we see what a tremendous work was placed upon Jesus' shoulders that all of the transgression of Israel, of which we read in this morning's write, uh, reading, it fell upon Jesus. It is no wonder that the work of the Messiah involved a man that had superhuman strength, which was given him from on high. It required this type of a, of a man to carry out the work that the Almighty had laid out for him to do. It is no wonder that Jesus said, how am I straightened until it be accomplished? So I want, there's, in the work of the Messiah, as we progress through the various aspects of it, as we outlined in the 24th verse of the ninth chapter of Daniel yesterday, there is every aspect of what was wrong between the Almighty and his creation. Every aspect of what was wrong is covered in the work of the Messiah. He had to provide the way back to at one with the Father. Now we'll turn to the second. You will recall yesterday that we enumerated and we said that the work of the Messiah would precede, be divided into six sections. 
based upon the reading in the authorized version. You will recall that the first one was to finish the transgression. The second one, to make an end of sins. That is what we will proceed to, to consider now. To make an end of sins is the way the authorized version reads. The revised version reads, to seal up sins. To seal up sins. The Septuagint version reads, for sin to be ended. For sin to be ended. The Young's literal translation reads, to seal up sins, very similar to the Revised. The Masoretic text, to make an end of sin, and Rotherham's, to fill up the measure of sin. Did I go too fast? The last one is, by, is from Rotherham's edition of, of the Bible, to fill up the measure of sin. Did you miss any of the others? Now, there are two important uh, words in this which we are considering this morning. The first one is sin or sins, plural. The literal meaning of that word in the Hebrew is cheth, C-H-A-T-T-A-T-H, cheth. And it means sin or sin offering, sin or sin offering. And that word cheth is used as sin in the Old Testament, 169 times, as sin offering, 116 times. The other word that is of importance in our consideration is end, just the single word, English word end, E-N-D. The literal word Hebrew word used is chatham, C-H-A-T-H-A-M, chatham, and it means to finish, to seal up, to perfect. And there is a similar word used in the Old Testament, tamam, T-A-M-A-M. These are Hebrew words. And that word means to be perfected or finished. It is the past tense. Now, the question passes through your mind. To make an end of sins, sin is still with us. It will be with us until the end of the thousand years, when sin and death are finally wiped away. 
So it cannot, at this point of the work of the Messiah, it cannot apply to sin as in the ordinary sense in which we understand it. It must apply to something more specific. And that is the reason, and I will repeat again, bear in mind to whom and about whom this is written. It is, as Daniel said to Daniel, thy people. Now, thy people, Israel, had a special dispensation which outlined sin. Let's see. Will you turn over with me to Romans chapter 3? Romans chapter 3 and verse 19. Now this is the Apostle Paul writing. And by way of brief review, the Apostle Paul was a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles and the kings of the earth. The Apostle Paul was specially trained in a comprehensive knowledge of Jewish law at the feet of Gamaliel in the Sanhedrin, which was the highest, as we would say, the highest degree of learning that a Jewish boy could attain to. It would be equivalent to our doctorates in our present-day colleges. Paul was trained in the full understanding of the law, and so he writes, not that his training under Gamaliel told him this, but after the three years and a half in Arabia, after his conversion, he was then able to reconcile the law and Christ. So Paul writes with that background, now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them that are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may be guilty before God. In verse 20, Therefore by the deeds of the law there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. By the law is the knowledge of sin. The reason that I have called your attention to these two verses, that this sin, this knowledge of sin under the law, in the Greek, bears the same meaning as chattath does in the Hebrew. We're talking, the Apostle Paul is talking about the same things not about sin in general, but about the same things which are spoken of and which are meant by the original words chattel. Now, in Exodus chapter 25, verse 40, we have a record that we should keep in mind. Exodus chapter 25, 
verse 40. This is a short verse, and it was said to Moses. Exodus 25, verse 40. And look, this is the angel of the Almighty speaking to Moses when he was in the mount. And look, that thou make them after their pattern which was showed thee in the mount. After their pattern which was showed thee in the mount. I also want to call your attention to another verse in in the New Testament because we believe that to have a good understanding of this, both the Old and the New Testaments must agree, and they do, even in spite that the Old was written in Hebrew and the New in Greek. Chapter 8, verse 5. Hebrews. Sorry, Hebrews chapter 8, verse 5. Now the writer of Hebrews makes this statement, which is a parallel rendering of Exodus 25, verse 40. Who serve unto the example and shadow of heavenly things, as Moses was admonished of a God when he was about to make the tabernacle, for see, saith he, that thou make all things according to the pattern showed thee in the mount. What was the pattern that was showed to Moses in the mount? It was the pattern of a certain type of sin and how it was to be taken away until the promised seed should come. The Mosaic dispensation was set forth in the Ten Commandments, of which we are going to review them this morning. It was set forth in order that by the law, as the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans, by the law is the knowledge of sin. Now I want to call your attention so that we don't confuse things. We are talking at this time, under this section of our work of the Messiah, we are talking about the sin that was shown in the pattern of the mount. We are not at this point talking about the transgression in Eden. That is important. We are going to cover that subsequently in the work of the Messiah. They are both comprehended in the work of the Messiah. But now we are talking about the sin of my people, Daniel's people. All that the tabernacle stood for, from the court, the outer court, to the holiest of all, with all the furniture that was provided for worship, all was a pattern to show the progress 
if you will believe it, from a person that came and con confessed their sin, worshipped, and finally attained to the immortality beyond the veil. Let's read again from the writings of the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10 and verse 4. I'm going to read several verses for connection. I'm going to begin at the, begin at the first verse. Romans chapter 10. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. And the meaning of righteousness is God's right ways. That is what righteousness means, God's right ways. Verse 4, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. Let's read it. For Christ is the end of the end of the law for God's right ways to everyone that believeth. You'll notice that it is upon belief. You must look to the end. Now we are going to submit another thought in connection with this fourth verse. If, as Paul says, Christ is the end of the law, then it is also reasonable to state that Christ is the end of sins contained in the law. And you can state it another way, Christ is the end of sin offerings contained in the law. That is in keeping with the instructions that were given to Moses, related again by the writer to the Hebrews, that thou make all things according to the pattern showed thee in the mount. Christ is the end of sin offering required by the law. Thus, sins are ended, according to the law of Moses. We should remember that all Mosaic rites and sacrifices pointed forward to Christ they were patterns of the heavenly things. In every detail, every last detail, although we in our weakness and in our inability to comprehend fully the mind of the Spirit, 
Yet in every jot and tittle, Christ is the end of the law for God's right ways to those who will believe. And we are deeply indebted to the writers in of the new, certain New Testament books that they had a very comprehensive viewpoint, one of which was Paul, another of which was Apollos. We are indebted to these men for their comprehensive view and knowledge of the law. For it is said concerning Apollos that he was mighty in the scriptures and persuaded the Jews out of the scriptures that Jesus was Christ. That is in, recorded in Acts. Now, in order that we might have or grasp a little better comprehension, will you turn over to me, with me, to Hebrews chapter 9. And we are going to read this chapter from verse 1 to verse 28, the entire chapter. We must keep in mind that what the writer is here relating is based on a comprehensive knowledge of the Mosaic rites. The writer starts, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 1. Then verily the first covenant had also ordinances of divine service and a worldly sanctuary. For there was a tabernacle made. And those of us who have read in the Old Testament know of the formation and the building of the tabernacle. There was a tabernacle made, the first wherein was the candlestick, the table, the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. We'll stop here for a moment. There was the candlestick in this sanctuary. This sanctuary was the part of the tabernacle where a justified believer typically entered for a probationary period. Only those, only the priests entered into the sanctuary. Only the priests. The high priest went one step further, as we shall see. And what was in the first sanctuary was the candlestick. This is our candlestick, the light that was there, was the light that shines from God's word. There was the table on which was placed the showbread. And there was the altar of incense. The altar of incense stood before the veil. In the altar of incense, there was incense burned on that altar, placed on that altar every day. 
And the lesson is to us as called out ones that our incense should be placed on that altar each day, not once a week, not as often as you think it necessary, but each day, in order that it might ascend with the sufferings of Christ as a cloud of incense acceptable to the Almighty, pleasing in his sight. And our prayers as incense will only be acceptable when they are truly enlightened by God's word, truly enlightened by God's word. For as was related yesterday, if ye shall ask anything in my name, I will do it, provided it is asked according to his will. After the second veil, the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, and that holiest of all was entered only once a year by the high priest when he, with the proper clothing, entered into that sanctuary, the holiest of all, with blood in his hands, with incense, which he placed upon the censer containing the coals taken from off the altar of sacrifice. He went into there, he placed this incense upon the coals, and there was a cloud ascended to cover the mercy seat. The high priest entered into there once a year, and he offered first the blood of an animal for himself. He offered first for himself. Then he offered the blood of the second animal for the sins of the people, for the sins of my people. Thus, a remembrance was made when someone came to the door of the tabernacle and confessed their sin. They confessed it over the head of the animal. The animal was slain and there was a burnt offering made and his sin was covered. It was not taken out of the way. It was covered only. That's all the Mosaic rites did. It covered it. But during, during before the end of that year of a 12-month period, typically all the sins of the nation of Israel were carried in and before, by the high priest before the mercy seat. And there was a remembrance made again of the sins of the nation. And those are the sins that came about by ignorance or failure to observe what the law of Moses commanded to the children of Israel. 
in this second veil, the holy, in, uh, past the second veil, which is the holiest of all, into the holiest of all, there was the golden censer, the ark of the covenant, overlaid round about with gold, wherein was the golden pot that had manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tables of the covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was an open top, what we would say a box, a certain size box. It was open on the top. In that Ark were placed three things. Three things were placed in that Ark. The first that was placed in there was the Tables of the Covenant. They were the Ten Commandments, which were written upon, engraved upon the stones, that mo the tables of stone that Moses took up into the mount the second time. And the angel wrote the law on those stones to be brought back down. The second was Aaron's rod that budded, typical of divine choice. You will recall the incident upon this was made. There was a, que a question arose among the, the elders of Israel that Moses and Aaron assumed too much responsibility and they said, all the congregation is holy. Remember what Moses was instructed to do? Each one of the elders was to bring a rod. Each one was to bring a rod. Aaron brought his rod, and they were laid up before the testimony till the morrow. And when they went to look at it, the one rod of selection budded and brought forth fruit. That one rod was Aaron's rod. To the Almighty, therefore, belongs the right of selection. It is his prerogative to choose whom he will, who will approach unto me, as he said to Moses. Aaron was chosen to approach to into the holiest of all as the mediator between the nation of Israel and God. The third was the pot of manna which was gathered and placed in a pot while they were still in the wilderness as a memorial that Israel's generations might see the bread wherewith Israel was fed in the wilderness. You will also notice, although it is not so related here, but in connection with the pot of manna, you will recall that each day it was to be gathered, a certain amount according to every man's eating. He that gathered little, uh, little had no lap. He that gathered much had nothing to spare. It was to be gathered. And they were commanded not to keep aught of it over till tomorrow. Those that did, it, the testimony is that it bred worms and stank. It spoiled. Very typical of mortality very typical of mortality. There is no, nothing abiding in mortality, in flesh. Now, 
The first miracle concerning the manna was the sixth day. They were told to gather twice as much. They did. And to those who couldn't see beyond the present, they came to Moses the sixth day, or on the morning of the, on the seventh day, on the Sabbath. There was nothing wrong with it. It was preserved for their needs on the Sabbath day without corruption. Do you see the pattern? Christ lay in the Sabbath, in the tomb over the Sabbath and saw no corruption. See the bread of life, what it means? Now the second miracle concerning manna went a step further. An omer of it was placed in a golden pot and put in the ark. It will be shown to you and to me in the future. Thus, it is typical of the bread of life which grants, which typifies immortality, incorruptibility. It is not destroyed over the ages. Time means nothing to that pot of manna that has been preserved. It is typical of immortality. And immortality is only obtained and only shown in type within the second veil, whether the high priest went with the robes of righteousness once a year. Jesus has entered into the holiest of all, the throne of grace on high, with the true robe of righteousness, when he said, Behold, I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. When it is given to you and to me to enter into the sanctuary and receive the priceless gift of immortality, we will then be in the same position as Christ is now, deathless for the eternal ages. So you see why Moses was admonished, see that thou make all things according to the pattern showed thee in the mount. Fifth verse, and over it the cherubims of glory, shadowing the mercy seat, of which we cannot now speak particularly. I'm going to skip this verse for just a later consideration. Now, when these things were thus ordained, the priests went always, note, the priests went always into the first tabernacle, accomplishing the service of God. But into the second went the high priest alone, once every year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the errors of the people. When I said that he offered first for himself and for the errors of the people, it wasn't my words, it's what the scripture tells you. The Holy Spirit, this signifying that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest, while as the first tabernacle was yet standing, which was a figure for the time then present, in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the service perfect as pertaining to the conscience. 
which stood only in meats and drinks and divers washings and carnal ordinances imposed on them until the time of Reformation, which began when Jesus started his ministry. But Christ being come, and high priest of good things to come, by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of that building, neither by the blood of goats and of calves, but by his own blood he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. For if the bl blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of an heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctifieth to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, now purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? All that the Mosaic rites stood for could not purge the conscience. Now you see the depth, the wisdom that was behind the Mosaic rites to show to Israel the difference between the Mosaic rites and that which was to come. The conscience is purged from dead works to serve the living God by just one sacrifice, the sacrifice of Christ. And for this cause, he is the mediator of the New Testament, that by means of death, note, by means of death, when Jesus prayed that if it be possible, let this cup pass from me, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done, Christ's prayer was answered. He was saved from death, but not by bypassing death. He had to pass through it. He had to drink the cup that the Lord, that the Almighty gave him to drink. So we see that by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the First Testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. For where a covenant is, there it must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is a force after men are dead. Otherwise, it is of no strength at all while the testator liveth. You see why it was? It was not possible for that cup to be taken away from Christ. If Christ had not died, the Abrahamic covenant and promise would not have been sealed and ratified. It must be ratified by the blood that took away sins or put it in the meaning we have given here, it made an end of sins. And the proof of that is that when Christ died on the cross, the veil in the temple, which stood between the sanctuary and the most holy, was rent from the top to the bottom. 
Now, if a man would rent it, he would begin at the bottom and tear it up. But when the Almighty rent it, he began at the top and went to the bottom. Thus, as we will see, that the way into the holiest was not made manifest or not open to view while the first tabernacle was standing. Whereupon the first testament, neither the first testament was dedicated without blood. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and of goats with water, scarlet wool, and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book and the people, saying, This is the blood of the testament or covenant which God hath enjoined upon you. Moreover, he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the sanctuary. And if you'll read in Exodus and Leviticus, when the tabernacle had all been completed, all the various parts of the tabernacle had been completed, that it required a period of time for the sanctification of that tabernacle. It had been prepared out of substance offered by dying mortals. To be of a true type, it must be sanctified or purified. The purification required blood be sprinkled upon it in order that it might be fit for an habitation for the Almighty to dwell among his people. And almost all things are by the law purged with blood, and without the shedding of blood is no remission. There is no remission without the shedding of blood. It was therefore necessary that the patterns of things in the heaven should be purified by these, but the heavenly things with better sacrifices than these. For Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true. If Christ had tried to enter into the Mosaic holy place, it would have been out of order, because the Levites, the sons of Aaron, were appointed to minister in the Mosaic order before the Almighty. It was to the high priest only of the descendants of Aaron was permitted to enter into the Mosaic most holy place. So Christ is not entered into the, plate, the holy places made with hands, which was a figure of the true, but where? But into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor yet that he should offer himself often as the high priest entered into the holy place every year with the blood for, of, of others. For then must he, must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world, but now once, in the end of the world, the end of the age is a better rendering. The end of the age hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment, so Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many or my people. And unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. You can see in reading the, this chapter over slowly 
what a comprehensive understanding the author had of the place that the Mosaic rites shadowed of the heavenly things. They were truly the patterns, and that's all. The heavenly things required something better, something that could take away sin, not just cover it. Now, if you'll turn back to chapter 8 of Hebrews, and we're going to review the first five verses. Now, of, this is Hebrews chapter 8, verses 1 to 5. Now of the things which we have spoken, this is the sum. We have such an high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle which the Lord pitched and not man. Let's read it, which the Lord set up and not man. The tabernacle in the wilderness was set up as the result of the work of man. The temple which Solomon built was set up as the work of man. It is true, the Almighty condescended to dwell there as long as Israel was faithful. But when Israel departed from their God, the glory that overshadowed the tabernacle, the Shechaniah glory, was taken away. A minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched to not man, for every high priest is ordained to offer gifts and sacrifice, sacrifices. Wherefore, it is of necessity that this man have somewhat also to offer. For if he were on earth, he should not be a priest, seeing that there are priests that offer gifts according to the law, who serve under the example and the shadow of heavenly things, as Moses was admonished, and we've read this verse before. And Aaron, by divine selection, was the man who was chosen by the Almighty to minister in the, in the antitypical office of the high priest. There's one verse which I want you to, re to read and always keep in mind, if you will. This is Hebrews chapter 10, verse 4. This is a most important verse in consideration of anything to do with the Mosaic rites, and it reads, For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sins. You notice it? Sins. This is what we've been talking about. To make an end of sins or sin offerings, it was not possible for the blood of bulls and goats to do thus. It required the sacrifice of Christ to do just that. Now, our time is fast slipping, and we have not covered all the material, so we'll have a little homework. And in your notebooks, put down Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. And all of you know what this chapter in Exodus pertains to. 
Read it and review it. It contains the law, which was the first thing that was placed in the tabernacle. It placed in the Ark of the Covenant. After you've read it, then we will, and you can do this after this class is over, then I want you, after you have read it, to turn over to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. And we will read those two verses at this time. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. The Lord our God is one Lord. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy might. These are the two commandments which Jesus said, upon which hang all of the law and the prophets. The first one is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God is one Lord. And the second, which is like unto it, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, or thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy might, with all thy soul. Now when you are reviewing the Ten Commandments, in Exodus 20, notice the difference between what the Ten Commandments say and what this says. The Ten Commandments begin with three words, Thou shalt not. If we may so state, it is a law of what you shall not do because of sins. If you do it, it is one of the sins that we're considering this morning, and it is also gives rise for the sin offering which was to be finished or taken away. If you do what the Ten Commandments say thou shalt not. Deuteronomy 6, verse 4 and 5 doesn't begin with thou shalt not. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy mind. It's the diametrically opposite approach to the Ten Commandments. And this is what Christ came to show to the nation of Israel, that the law of Moses was only given as a shadow of heavenly things which were to come. It could not take away sin. There's just one sacrifice that can take away sin, and that was the sacrifice that Christ was required to make in order that sin, which we're considering, and sin offerings were to be completely finished. Now, we have a few moments before the class is dismissed, and if you have questions, concerning the material which we covered either yesterday or today, but not tomorrow, why we will entertain them. And I know we have, I see some brethren back here that are ready and able and willing to help us out if we get stuck. First one, yes. Uh, in this uh, 
park where the golden top and the aerodrome fitted. And it was a fun place. I was looking for it a moment ago. Where it said the only thing that was in there was the table of the cup. When was the well, the Aaron's rod budded. Remember, in the, when the manna was given, it was said, to, commanded that they were to take a golden pot and gather an omer of it and place it in a pot and set it up before the sanctuary as a memorial that Israel's generations might view the manna with which they were fed. That's in Exodus. Well, uh, I think it's during. Uh, well, but you see, uh, that is true, but the, 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 it is in Exodus where they were commanded to do so, and they were also commanded to put in Aaron's rod that budded. Now, I can't answer that question. I can't answer it. Does anyone else here uh, have any idea? I, uh, first of all, I don't believe we were told exactly when it was placed there. I couldn't find it. That's the reason I I don't believe that we were told exactly. Do you know, Jim? Well, that's I think it was done in the early part. Now, uh, if you will note later in the history of Israel, you'll notice the absence of two of them. What happened? No one knows. I don't know. The scriptures don't tell us when these two were removed. I don't, uh, sister, I don't believe that that's when. I believe that it was sometime later than that, because the uh, the Philistines were punished for looking into the ark. I think that, I don't think, I don't believe that the Almighty would have allowed a, if the significance of the patterns means anything, I don't believe that he would have allowed an uncircumcised, an uncircumcised hand to reach in there and take it out. It did. And I said we would skip the, fir the fifth verse and not talk about it. <laughs> I said we would skip the, the, the fifth verse. Remember I said we would pass it in, Deut in uh, uh, Hebrews chapter 9. I said we'll skip the first verse and we'll talk about it later. Not today. So far, it is open. Yes. Yes, it did. That's right. But we've got something to cover on that. Uh,
destruction. I mean, in the last uh, destruction, the world's destruction, of course, everything that man's brain can conceive of will be used at the, in the last battle. Yes. Therefore, God will intervene and destroy the most of man, and that goes to show that. There's no limit to God's power. No. Any time you can lie. You'll also notice. God can always bring up more work. Of course, and man can never live. You notice when, uh, I believe it was Hezekiah, uh, when the angel of the Lord went forth and destroyed, just one angel went forth and destroyed the hosts of Sennacherib. How many did that one angel destroy? 185,000, which is 185 legions of soldiers. A, a legion is 100. One angel could do that. So what could 12, 12 legions of angels do? Well, he was bringing forth that, and he got that out too, and showing that all of man, man, and even though at this time, like we say, science is reaching such a Point never before in history, but in the end, there'll be only That's right. The destruction of Pompeii, and the lava came in and destroyed everything because they were trying to destroy the Christians. I believe we have a, had a question. It's just that one word. We have a question in class. Are they, are they, uh, the few were chosen? The many. But uh, let's look back at the type. There was only one was chosen to minister in the most holy place. That was given to Aaron.